I'm Modesta Ahmed, Managing Partner at Unitas Communications, and this is PR and Lost. Next week, federal elections will take place in Germany, ending the era of Chancellor Angela Merkel. The elections come at a crucial time as this summer's severe floods have devastated the country, making climate politics a central question in the upcoming elections. I sat down with Omid Nurupur, member of the German Federal Parliament and the Green spokesperson on foreign policy to discuss these issues and much more. In this episode, we will take a deep dive into the climate crisis, the German political landscape both at home and abroad, discussing Omid's ongoing campaign to maintain his seat in Parliament. We will also be taking questions from researchers and academics throughout the discussion. Welcome, Omid. Thank you for joining us again. I mean, German federal elections are set to take place at the end of September, bringing an end to the era of Angela Merkel, who's been the Chancellor of Germany since 2005. The support to your party, the Greens, has been rising significantly since the last elections, with recent polls suggesting that 20% of German voters are backing the party. Are German citizens becoming more concerned about climate change, or does this demonstrate discontent with other parties, or is this a combination of both things? It's a combination of both things, but first, let me let me uh, express my gratitude for for having me. Germans are getting more and more not only aware but sensitive of, of the, the the question of, of climate change, uh, because uh, we see that the crisis uh, not only in in countries of, of the global south is not only addressing those people who are poor or are living in 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 uh, rural areas or are living in in hot countries, but it's everywhere. And this is why they call it climate change. This is nothing new, of course. And by um, and saying that to people who are well um, aware of, uh, of that what's going on for decades in, in our planet, nothing new. But it's of course completely different to to feel to see it. It's completely different to see the former president of, of Maldives uh, having this, this cabinet session he showed to the world, I think, more than 10 years ago, in underwater, to, to showing how serious the situation for his country is, uh, than seeing happening the flood we recently had in, in Central Europe and in, in, in our, our neighborhood. German Red Cross, the, the Department for Aid of uh, the Middle East, in, of the German Red Cross, not of the international one, couldn't bring clean help to, to the Middle East for the last two months because they are completely occupied by, by that, what's going on in this country. And then, of course, this is changing the, the sense of, and then, of course, the intensity and then the relevance of, of, of the issue, also for election. And of course, this is one of the reasons why the Greens are are not fighting for the ten percent limit, but are somewhere between twenty and then thirty. Um, only last month, we we witnessed catastrophic floods across Europe, especially Germany being hit hard. German officials have been warning about the heavy rainfall and the risk of flooding. Yet in many parts of the country, people were not evacuated. Now officials are being investigated over the slow flood response. Do you think this has exposed Germany or even Europe's? lack of environmental disaster, or was this simply a misconduct by local authorities? Um, yeah, sure. You know, there, there are two pillars of uh, climate protection. One is, of course, trying to, to achieve the 1.5 or at, or at least even the, the 2% goal, which is getting, we, see, we saw the IPCC report two days ago, and this is the question of prevention. The first pillar is prevention. The second one, which uh, has been um, underperformed for the last years, is, of course, adaption. Adaption is because the, the, the number of the crises and the catastrophes is, is increasing every year. Uh, and we have to admit that we, we were not prepared for that. And we have to change. And we have to address this, this challenge 
um, and we have to prepare our administration and our institutions for for adaptation measures measures on and and this is not only just coming in and evacuating people but the question of uh, is it uh, reasonable to go on uh, having housings next to the channels you know that they're gonna they're gonna be a part of the next big flaw um, I'd like to welcome Dr. Akila Sandu to join us now. She's an academic at the Faculty of Law at Augsburg University in Germany with expertise in EU data protection law as well as human rights law. Thank you for joining us, Akila, and over to you now to ask a question. Thank you very much for having me here, and thank you, um, Amin Rupo, for your interesting insights. So my question would be from, obviously, from a legal perspective, um, the question that, I mean, policymaking has been an extremely challenge during the pandemic, and uh, the lawmakers had to make far-reaching and very sensitive decisions from the view of fundamental rights protection and also data protection within a very short time span. So how do we ensure that uh, after the next election and uh, during the so-called so fourth, fourth wave, how do we ensure that the legislative parliament, the only directly democratically legitimized organ, remains the main actor in lawmaking, um, you know, that the, the power is not permanently shifted to the executive or the so-called conference between the federal government and uh, lender government. So uh, I think parliament should, should try to regain the, the original power it, it had. First, we Absolutely, I, um, I agree. Second, uh, this is what Parliament, not, not my party only, but, but the Parliament started to do the beginning of, of this year, I would say. Uh, in 2020, we did not. So I would buy any of uh, critical uh, remark on that, but, but it has changed. And this is why these days uh, we have the first conference of, of the uh, prime ministers of the federal states after, I don't know, eight or nine months. This is the, the main reason for that is that we, we are fighting back. And of course, this is the same for, for the flood crisis. Uh, this is why we're gonna have an extraordinary session of the Bundestag in two weeks, talking about uh, adapting uh, our, our legislation and, and, and try to make the help for, for those who are affected by, by flood catastrophes much more efficient. But I fully agree, this is, this is you know, all of this, there, there has been the rhetoric in Germany in the beginning of the pandemic saying, the crises are at the time of, of the executive branch and this, is maybe right for one or two weeks, but but shouldn't should be a lasting phenomenon. Thank you, Akila. Thank you, Omid. Um, a recent government report showed that social inequalities have widened in German society during the past years. In fact, this isn't unique to Germany, but a recognizable pattern across Europe, which has been aggravated by, of course, the coronavirus pandemic. Nevertheless, Germany being one of the wealthiest countries in the world, this is rather concerning. Do you believe that reducing the gap between rich and poor one of the defining election questions um, in, in the upcoming election. I, uh, um, I was to McDowell County, West Virginia in 2017. I think it was in June. And the reason for that, was United States, and the reason for that was I just screened the, the map, the election map of United States and, and watched for, uh, was looking for, for the constituency with the highest rate of those people who voted for Trump. McDowell County, 94% of the people were for Donald Trump. This is why I just, just went there to understand. And I got something which has been named the poverty school. Um, I, uh, McDowell County, 1960, had 101,000 inhabitants. Now there are 19,000. Um, all of the jobs then, coal miners. All the jobs, jobs today, coal miners. So no jobs anymore. 
Um, there's none, not one doctor in the entire county for the people, not, not one dentist. There's one McDonald's. Uh, this is the entire offer for, for people who want to eat something outside of their houses. There's, there are the people regularly do not have um, uh, clear clean water. They have uh, uh, breakdowns, black blackouts every single day. Roads completely gone. One of the highest rates of uh, opioid crisis deaths in the entire country. Um, I saw the highest official of the Democratic Party there, and he told me, "Of course, I voted for Donald Trump," and I wondered why. And I asked him how come, and the answer was. Uh, we had a choice between a man who, promised, who promised us the pie in the sky. Trump was there in McDonald's and told you the people, I bring back the coal miners choice, which of course was a huge lie. But we had a choice between this man who, who was giving us some promises and a lady who, was not even, who, who didn't even show any compassion for our situation. And this is why we voted for Trump. Um, by the way, before I went to McDonald's, I was in Washington, D.C., telling to my colleagues in, at the Hill that I going to go there. And they told me, this is interesting. Could you tell us how, 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 how it is there? We've never been there. This is not my job to go there. I, I, I learned a lot there, but, but this is the job of these people. And these decision makers are not visible in McDonald's. And this is why people are so fed up with, with, with Washington and with the elite. Same, but this is, I'm not saying that, not because I'm, I just want to criticize my, my colleagues in the United States, because they are doing a lot of good things and they do the job the, the way they can. But because this phenomenon is the same everywhere. Um, I came back and went to the northeast of, of Germany. It's very close, a very, very small city, very close to the Polish um, border. I saw a lady who was 92 years old um, living in her house alone. And she told me that she's going to vote for, for, for the right-wing extremists. And I asked her why. And she said, because... Look, when, when I'm sitting at home alone and I, she had this this, uh, this red button she, she could um, call a, the ambulance with, I got a heart attack and I called him immediately before I, I, I fall. Um, you're going to need 90 minutes until they come. And he, the only question she had was, why am I paying taxes? This question is much more important than a question of poor and right. Because there are too, so many right, uh, rich, there are so many rich people who are writing for in Germany, there, 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 are, there, are so, there are so many histories in Germany for the 30s and 40s of rich people who endorsed, voted, and then supported the Nazis. And there are so many uh, uh, poor people who do not, who do not support extremists. And this is not only a question of, of Nazis, it's a question of any single uh, kind of, uh, of, of extremism. But I think the job for us as politicians of the democratic spectrum is to deliver, to, to make people give back the feeling to the people that there is a state that is worthy to pay tax. And this is what is, um, I wouldn't say it's gone, but we did a lot of mistakes. And we, it's not the, the politicians in, in Germany, but democratic forces all across the globe. Thank you. So a recent report by the German Interior Ministry and the Federal Criminal Office shows that in 2020, Islamic phobic crimes increased by 8% compared to the previous year, with a total of over 1,000 Islamophobic crimes being recorded last year. Germany also saw a big jump in offences committed by far-right supporters, nearly 6% from the previous year at, at just over 23,000. Would you say the pandemic has further polarised German society? or only provided a platform for these divisions to come to the surface. Also, more importantly, how can Germany 
tackle rising Islamophobia? I think uh, there are two phenomena. This is what I'm saying is not a scientific, based on scientific research. But my analysis is first, the core of their supporters and voters is, is more united than ever because of the pandemic. The second one is the potential has been capped because a lot of people who voted for them because they have been fed up of, of the, the democratic parties just were shocked and, and, and were afraid and, 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 and were, were not willing to just play with their votes and, and, and just, just go there and show the protest. But, but no, now it's getting more, much more important now. It's, it's a crucial time. This is why they support and the endorsement for, for democratic parties in Germany during the entire last year increased. There have been times when people in Germany thought that the Nazis are coming into the Bundestag and they're going to take, take the power immediately. This is not over, but this is not an imminent threat. On the other side, it's getting much more harder to get rid of this party on, and, and, and uh, they, because they're more and more supporters of them are now true believers of that xenophobic and, and, and anti-Muslim rhetoric they are, they are spreading all around. And yeah, we had, I remember very well in May, I think in June last year, um, there had been a huge uh, debate in Germany about uh, mosques as super spreaders. They, their business is fear and then and work with fear and then talk, play with fear of the people and then try to create more. And we have to, to train our, our, our societies to, to not just uh, decide by, by fear. The, the current situation, the current talk of the AFD, the only reaction of the Nazis in Germany on, on the disaster we are now seeing in Afghanistan, of, um, the, where the Taliban are, are uh, overrunning uh, capitals of, um, of, uh, of provinces one or two a, a day, is uh, millions of, of Afghans going to come over to Europe as refugees, and this is uh, why people should should vote for for Nazis to rescue Germany from people who are now who are, who are I think now thinking of how to survive the next day and not how to come to Germany. Now we have um, Dr. Ali Aslan Gubase joining us. He works within the fields of organizational theory, entrepreneurship, business ethics, and leadership. He's also the head of innovation, entrepreneurship and the Society Research Group at the Humboldt Institute for Internet and Society in Germany. Thank you for joining us, Ali, over to you. Thanks, and thank you, Omid. And thank you for speaking truth to words and well, calling people as they are, as Nazis, uh, who they are. So th thanks, thanks for that. Um, today, I mean, greetings from, from Rainy Hamburg. Today was an exciting day for me. My son um, got to, had his first day in school. But somehow less exciting, I find uh, the election campaign overall, not from the Green Party, but the, the overall campaign. And I wondered why, I mean, uh, for, for, for this call, I think Annalena Baerbock, the, the head of the Green Party, tried from time to time to really speak the, um, to the larger debates. But somehow it was reminded by Helmut Schmidt saying that if you have visions, you have to go to the doctor. It somehow seems to me that we Germans, me, well, me being part of them, but maybe excluded, we don't really like these visionary ideals. But somehow I think, and I wonder whether you agree, First, why that is, why, why we don't talk about these big ideas, but also maybe what these are. I wonder really why we're not talking about the vision for Germany 2030, right? What is Germany environmentally, socially going to look like or supposed to look like? And I think, I mean, as Anaya Berg, I think, tried, but then got a really strong pushback from the media and so on. And somehow it seems that the system doesn't allow you to talk these visionary ideas. So, I mean, do you agree with that? Do, and what is maybe the visionary idea for Germany 2030 and beyond? 
that we actually need to get an environmental and socially sustainable kind of version of, of Germany, which by the way, I think um, that uh, uh, um, on, on this environmental social side, I think it's oftentimes kind of understood as a constraint towards our living conditions, but obviously it creates so many other opportunities, right? Like sustainable opportunities that we have there. I mean, I think this is what, what happened when the Greens and the Social Democrats were in, in, in power, because actually Germany became the, the forerunner of solar energy, renewable energy and so on, and really had actually a business advantage there. So I wonder why that debate at least hasn't reached me yet. Um, thanks, thanks, Omid. I try to understand all the time what kind of election campaign is we are we are seeing in these days because I've never seen such a thing because nobody want to talk about about problems everybody want to talk about details of whatever this is some kind of complicated and, and bizarre a good friend of mine recently said the reason for that is Germans are German Germany is in good shape so people are not seeing that the huge problems coming super important I'm very grateful that Murasa just started saying that. This is a very crucial election for Germany. It's going to be a historic one. This is the first time ever in Germany that a chancellor is not running again, and then we're just going to have new leaders in the country, and they're going to decide the next decade of, this, of, of, of Central Europe, and then Germany as, as one of the most important um, countries in Europe. I have to confess that there is there's something in my party which I'm not agreeing with, the high number of those people who are fans of Angela Merkel. I'm not. And I think historians in 10 years kind of say that these years of Angela Merkel's been the years where she uh, reacted masterfully to, to crises, and there has been a lot. But because she, was, she did not bring up a lot of initiative, this has been the time when, when Germany missed the digitalization train. Just to give you one example, which you are much more aware of than I am, and we can talk a lot about it. I would say there are four, uh, four big issues we have to tackle. Of course, the question is of, of, of climate protection. Uh, and you mentioned 2030, 2030, if IPCC is this right, 2030 gonna be the beginning of the real nightmare. Uh, if we do not um, um, shift to over to the decarbonization. Second one is the, the question of uh, how to keep the democracy in, this, uh, in our countries and of course in Germany together. Next one gonna be, I would know, hopefully not for the next 10 years, but of course question is how to turn, how to, to end this pandemic and all of that, what is gonna come, maybe won't have the status of pandemic. But when I see the vaccination rates in any global south, it's a long way to go still. And the pandemic gonna be over or, or, or the COVID crisis is gonna be over in the moment when everybody that got help. This is the nature of it, of course. And the, the, the last one, the last one is um, the question of uh, the, the social the social cohesion of our country. And this last one also, by the way, is related to the question of digitalization and modernization of our society and our, our administration and our economy. Having said that, I didn't think that the election campaigns in Germany are going to be international on an international issue. But all of this is related, of course, to the international vision of the question of democracy is, is of course, depending on the huge battle of, of systems we are seeing um, between democracies on one hand and authoritarian states on the other. The question of a pandemic, obviously, uh, is, is a global also, global one also. Climate change also is, is affecting everyone. It just can't tackle it by, by, by international cooperation. And the question of, of uh, 
social cohesion is not ending at, the, at our borders. So I just can underline what just said, and I have no idea why this uh, this way in Germany in these days, but I hope that we can change that immediately, but we have to change that and move this, the, the debate to a global level because these are global questions we have to ask. Thank you, Ali. Thank you, uh, Amit. Um, moving on to my next question. Being both the Green spokesperson on foreign policy and Iranian German, I'd like to hear your thoughts on Iran's current political situation. The new President uh, Ibrahim Raisi re replaced Hassan Rouhani last week, taking over discussions over the revival of the 2019 Iranian nuclear deal, which has now, of course, been stalemate. In your opinion, what are the prospects for reaching an agreement now with Raisi in power, and how might this shift Iran's regional role? I fully support and gonna support the deal, and I think it was a huge mistake to cancel it. And the American withdrawal was very bad. There are a huge number of problems with Iran. None of these problems gonna be smaller after after they got a bomb. This is and the, the huge mistake of the deal was not the deal, but the, the exception of people like John Kerry or Frank Walter Steinmeier, then our foreign minister, had to say that that they become a standard. We're going to bring a broad solution with Eddie for, for, for everything with Iran. The problems are the human rights situation within the country, the aggressive regional politics, um, policy oh, you can see in, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Iraq. Of course, the question of, of, uh, of Israel, which is especially in Germany, in a, a, huge issue, in a huge issue. And of course, um, the ballistic missile problem of the country, which is, which is dangerous. I just can't repeat that. They got a bomb. None of this problem is, is, is going to be resolved. The um, stability of the system is shaken by the pandemic, by mismanagement, by, by, by corruption. And we see that every single day. And this is what people go to the streets and, and, and demonstrate for clean air, for clean water. Racy's uh, human rights record is bloody, literally bloody. I think we have to go on talking, and it can happen. Uh, the Iranian side still is keen to come back to the deal because they hope that they're gonna get some some cash infusion to to make the system more stable. They got the cash infusion. I remember that I called my then foreign minister Steinmeier the day after the deal warning him, saying that based on the nuclear deal, we're going to find a solution with Iran and Syria, telling him that the, 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 a lot of people in Iran are going to take this money and not, not create jobs with, uh, but they're going to spend it uh, in, uh, for, for militias in, and more militias in Syria, and this is what happened. Uh, and the pandemic is, is, is uh, you know, they have now the fifth wave of, of, of COVID, and uh, they, they are heading the next, the next lockdown, and there are a lot of reasons for that, which are making everybody mad. You know, one of the reasons why the, the last wave has been so long was, and there are a lot of people who confirmed that to me, also uh, the inside of the system, they wanted to uh, have the fourth wave going longer. So it had a good excuse why the turnout of the, of the elections are so low, okay? And this is the level of cynicism we're talking about. This is a relevant player in the Middle East, they can destroy a lot, so it's not, you just cannot go and, and get rid of the system and then the regime and everything is good. You have to find a mo modus vivendi and, and to have to find uh, fights, 
the first priority still has to find a way to keep him away from the nuclear bomb. And the second one is, and this is what I would uh, accuse the Europeans for for the last years, since the deal came up in 2015, you just cannot hide behind the deal and not uh, not address the human rights situation there and, and what Iranian, Iranian militias and proxies has done and are still doing in Syria and Lebanon and Iraq. And this is not only an emotional issue for me because I'm, I have relatives and friends there, but also because I had have and had a lot of friends in Syria I've been killed. And um, Lokman Slim was my last friend who had been killed by, by, by Iranian proxy slash by, by Hezbollah in, in the south of, mm-hmm. um, of, of Beirut. When I saw Lokman first time in, in Beirut, his first question was, what are you doing against the Iranian imperialists? And I had no idea what he's talking about. And now I definitely know what he's talking about. When you look at the disaster of Lebanon, it's 60% plus uh, the disaster of the elites of the country, but there is definitely an Iranian role. Mm. And uh, this has to be addressed. Well, Germany, of course, has taken a key role uh, and interest in this, uh, right, for, for a long time. If you were in charge right now of Germany's approach to the situation, how would you do things differently? When it comes to Iran, I would go on trying to, to, to save the deal, and I would address the question of the human rights there. And now, listen, we have four, no, now, now three German citizens now in, in, in Iranian jail. I know all of the relatives here. I, I talk to these people, to, to the daughters of, of the detainees every day, and they do not think that, they do not have the illusion that the Germany just can bring, get these people out from a torture prison in Iran. But what they want us to do is just, just addressing the issue, uh, talking about the human rights situation there. So I would team up with all of these um, like-minded people and, and states and organizations, and would then discover that there are much more than I ever thought from these like-minded people in Iran itself, um, and, and talk about all of these issues. There is no military option for, for a regime change. The mindset, is, is, the mindset has to be much stranger than the one we have now. Thank you, Amin. Um, moving on, the, the poll ratings for Armin Laschet, the front runner, to succeed Angela Merkel as German Chancellor have recently taken a hit after he was seen laughing and joking during a, vi- uh, during a visit to a town that has been devastated by floods. Do you believe the CDU has lost its election advantage? Can Laschet still hang on to his party's support base? And if the CDU managed to overcome the scandal and win the election, would a coalition be out of the question? Listen, if um, you want me to get the big job you just promised, we have to win the election. To be honest, no idea. We have no idea what's going to happen. There, this is a, a three-person race now uh, because the chancellor candidate of the Social Democrats is getting stronger. Um, I do not think that he can achieve chancellery. Again, he can clinch the chancellery, but nobody knows in these days. This is a situation we never had before. Um, and the most important thing going to be that after the elections, there is, it's possible to have a coalition which is built, um, not immediately, but, but very soon. And um, what we just can't afford is the democratic parties fight each other after elections for months until they find a way to, 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 to build a coalition and build, build a government. Um, this is what we are working on. And of course, we, we want to um, be on one. Uh, the last uh, poll I saw, we are 2% behind, behind the CDU. 
So it's everything that the race is open. Um, we we do not know. But to be honest, the most exciting elections in Europe in the next month is the one in France, which is um, you know in in Germany. We are doing a lot of mistakes. We are doing good things or bad things. And at the end of the day, there are, we are not in the parliament, but the Democratic Party gonna gonna lead, um, gonna take the lead, and another Democratic Party or party is gonna be part of the coalition. In France, um, I just can hope that the same. Um, and it's not only question of Marine Le Pen uh, being the biggest threat to the European Union, maybe ever. But also, and, and we know that the, the President Macron's rates are not that stable. Um, but um, it's also the case that France is taking over the, the presidency of the European Union in, in January 1st. And three and a half, and a half months, three and a half, I think it's going to be in end of March. Three and a half month, months later, they're going to have their presidential elections of the country. So this is a real exciting um, uh, election, much more than ours. Ours, you know, of course we're going to win and everything's going to be good. But if we do not, it's going to be Democratic parties uh, who are going to uh, govern the country. Thanks, Amit. Um, next, we have Camilla Barungi joining us. She's founder of the Alliance for Development, a global strategic advisory consultancy and focuses on accelerating innovative ecosystems in Africa in line with UN SDGs. She's also a sustainability advisor for the United Nations and the member of the advisory board for the Center for Sustainable Palm Oil Studies. Welcome, Camilla, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Mirasar, for um, making me a part of this conversation, and thank you to Amid. So a lot of the work I do is um, around the SDGs and uh, accelerating innovation ecosystems in Africa, and I would like to focus my question around that. Um, first of all, I'm really glad to hear that the Greens have recently gained uh, more support from Germany. Because as we've seen, Germany can have such a huge role um, around climate change leadership. However, when setting up these ambitious climate targets, I feel that sometimes Western countries have a tendency of leaving the developing nations out of the conversation and almost uh, dictate, dictating the rules of global trade. But what often happens is there's a limited dialogue for countries in the global south and the understanding of the realities of the small farmers in these countries and how these trade impact these livelihoods, uh, people at this last mile. In Africa, for example, palm, palm oil is grown by many smallholder farmers who've managed to lift themselves out of poverty because of the crop, something that doesn't happen often uh, and doesn't get mentioned when, when establishing these trade policies. And this is just one example of many different crops that have brought economic growth to developing countries. I've done a lot of work in Uganda supporting the SDGs to work towards greater inclusion by having more women involved in farming activities. And I think this is something that can, that can have a huge impact on these countries in the global south. So this leads to my question to me. How can the Green Party ensure that its climate policies are truly inclusive and won't end up having a negative impact on people in the developing world who often rely on their income from farming? How can we be more inclusive when setting up these climate targets? Thank mm -hmm. you. Um, let me start um, with the mindset here. And this is not a unique German problem, but there are two views on Africa. First one is, it's a problem. The second one is, well, we have huge opportunities there. The view we do not have here, or we do not see 
very often is that we're talking about 52 different countries, economies, and different situations there. I remember very well when I, I don't want to tell, tell the name, but one of the most important German officials once said on air, I thought I would stand next to her because we took the same plane. I'm now traveling towards her first trip to, 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 to Burma. I'm now going to Africa to understand the situation there. I say, wow, this is this is ambitious. One of the reasons for for this mindset is, of course, that we did not we did not discuss how to bring in just to 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 the victims of colonialism also in Germany. This is a now increasing issue in Germany. I'm very very happy about that. But, but this is going to be a, this has to. There are so many things we have to do there still. I just tried to to talk about German interests. Uh, there had been a lot of reasons, for example, why the Doha round collapse of the end. I would say one which is definitely which what definitely went wrong was that Europeans did not understand what it means to to talk with partners and give to other countries the sense that we are talking about partners and not we are dictating as you just said we're dictating what's gonna happen. There is now this bad race with China and an influence and China won a lot a lot of landscape. But the consequences I'm seeing there is not that the Europeans say, listen, the Chinese are coming in and, and try to push us out by, by just ignoring standards and just giving money, but also to understand that China is doing it with the rhetoric of country, developing countries among each other against uh, the imperialism and colonialism of, of, of the West. And this rhetoric, of course, is, is, is uh, generic, but they are addressing the right point. And this is what we have to do uh, uh, strongly. What is happening in these days in Germany is not not, not only this, but for the last years is there is this obsessive focus on um, on migration and demography in in Africa. And everybody you, you talk to the administration of my country, they always just talk about the issue. And of course, in, in combined, um, we have this ministry for for economic cooperation. Most of the the, the funding that they gave to little projects in, in the Amazon, which are super needed and, and needs our, our funding in these days because they want to give it to Afewerki or other people who just uh, keep the, the migrants away from, from Europe. Okay, so this is, this is the most important thing, I think, to get rid of that, that mindset and, and, and find a way to talk like partners have to talk. And this is to your question, and this is the way we have to discuss bilaterally also, and as EU uh, AU EU uh, uh, format the question of of, uh, of financing uh, adaptation on when it comes to climate change. This is this is the only way I see we have we we can go in the next future. The other way going to be we give money to dictators and hope that they keep the problems which uh, are not which we think we could could happen away from. And this is this is not. Thank you. Thank you, Amit. Thank you, Camilla, for asking that question. Right, moving on to another question from me. With the United Nations COP26 summit taking place in, in the United Kingdom, in Glasgow, in November, are you hopeful for global powers like Germany, the UK, and the US to enhance joint efforts against the fight on climate change? Both the UK and the US have had a terminant few years, Britain after Brexit, US with Donald Trump, and withdrawal from the Paris Agreement. Do you believe the countries are able to turn a new chapter? Or is the damage done by Brexit and Trump just too much? We lost a lot of time because of the two phenomena, but but and, and one is, is a permanent 
uh, damage. But but at the end of the day, um, you know, there, there is just one planet to, to save, and there is the only planet we we, we can save. Uh, and uh, we are running out of time. And if the next, uh, you know, this is a rhetoric of of of, of, of a repeating saying the next summit is the decisive one and the last one maybe. But I think that it never had been so credible to say that because people see it all uh, all around themselves, all around their houses and in the cities and the rural areas that climate change is coming, and it's not a phenomenon of of scientists uh, in the newspaper. So I think it's I think there are two the the, the damage they, of human life. The damage for for economies of our countries is already too big to to be ignored, and I think that the leaders of the countries are seeing that. But of course, it's different if they're the green chancellor or another one. But uh, I, you see, I'm I'm warming up with my campaign mode. <laughs> I wouldn't expect anything less. You have a big job to get. Right. So moving on. Angela Merkel has been named the climate chancellor for her long-standing international engagement for cutting emissions and demonstrating global leadership to tackle climate change. Now, when she prepares to leave office, many have wondered whether she lived up to this nickname and if the policy, policies she introduced are successful in the long run. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, on Angela Merkel's I, legacy. I remember very well when I, was in, I saw a human rights activist in Kathmandu and during our dinner, we got a uh, we got a message that I I forgot who got the Nobel Prize for for peace. And he was upset that that it was not Angela Merkel getting because so generous to 15 and then years after that when it came to the question of um, of refugees and hospitality of Germany to to receive them. I never shared that view, and maybe this is a German opposition problem, but international view of Angela Merkel being so generous and, and and receiving all of these people and and uh, and, and and being the climate chancellor, I cannot buy that. Uh, we had a long discussion on how to get rid of coal, which is of course one of the pillars of of a decarbonization strategy for every country. And after a long period of debate, there has been some kind of a common sense of an independent committee, um, how to and and when we should get out of coal. Uh, get rid of coal, and the day after the the climate chancellor started the legislation to implement the results of, of the committee, and, and they did deliver. They did not just just uh, implement it the way the commission uh, recommended how to to do so. As this is why the the end of coal Germany going to be at least the current legislation is three years later than, as the end of of coal is going to be three years later than the end of coal, how it might be recommended by, by an independent commission. So this is this is um, why I'd never bought that. You know, I'm just going to, to Greenland and having good pictures as not a proper climate protection policy. So I'm sorry uh, to disappoint on that, but I'm still part of the opposition against Angela Merkel. really believe that uh, there had been so much more things which could, could have been done in this country. Now, we have a question that I want to move on from an audience member. Rutaba Tarek, she wants to know if you think the German Green Party candidate Annalena Borbock has been unfairly attacked by the German media. Do you believe this has something to do with the fact that she's the only woman in the race, or do you think there's a similar level of criticism towards other leading candidates? First, yes. Second, we knew that before the campaign started, so we tried to prepare. Uh, Annalena Baerbock herself tried to prepare super hard 
to prepare for such a situation. We knew that before because, um, just let me quote a friend of mine who, who been a part of the campaign of Hillary Clinton in 2016, who told us that his shocking, uh, for, for him it was a shocking uh, news. Uh, he discovered that it's much easier to drive a sexist campaign uh, than a racist campaign. And he was also a part of the, the Obama campaign in 2008 and 2012. But we knew that before. So I'm not in the shape of, of uh, and it's not my job to, to play media. But yeah, it's, it's much harder how she's attacked. But let me, you know, as, as a Muslim and an Iranian origin person in Germany, if there has been one thing I, I learned when I came to, to, to Germany, in, in the, uh, I was 13 years old then, was I just can't afford the number of mistakes other people can, okay? And this is this is hard to swallow, but a reality. She still can win, and I hope, and we're gonna do everything we can that she's gonna win this election. And I think it she she would be elected. It could be a good uh, opportunity also to fight all of these phenomenons and all of these tendencies that you just just referred to, and then your question is referring to in a proper way in our country. There is one more aspect which we should not forget, and this is foreign interference. It's hard to just blame other countries or other head of state. But from those parties, just give you one example. There is one bigger country in Europe which refused to diversify its economy away from fossils for the last two or three decades, especially for the last two decades. We are the only party really fighting Nord Stream, the pipeline Nord Stream, because it's the fossil divider of Europe, because it's bad for the economy and it's bad for the energy security of my country. This would not be good for the bigger country, which has not diversified with its economy if we are part of the government and then stop Nord Stream. This is just one. And, and there are people who say that this country is masterfully playing with bots and, and trolls and, 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 and social media campaigns. And there has been a huge congressional report on that in, two years ago, I think, in the United States. So, yeah, I fully agree with, with your question. Uh, and I, the answer to your question is yes. Why we shouldn't forget that there are campaigns systematically driven against Annalena Bravo, not only because she's a woman, but also because of the policy. What policy is she? Since we're almost at the end of the event, I'd like to ask Amid for any concluding remarks. We've covered many topics during today's discussion, and is there anything you'd like to add now? After you gave me the big job, every newspaper we're going to write about it. So, uh, <laughs> no, um, I'm, I'm to be honest, I'm just, just happy and, and honored to be uh, your guest. So, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of PR and Mars with Hadassah Ahmed by Unitas Communications. I hope you learned something valuable from this episode. I certainly did. We'll be back in two weeks' time with a brand new episode. Stay tuned.